So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. I hope you're well and that your dog walk, your run or your drive to the office sees you feeling good and that you're ready to finish 2021 with a real flourish. I've got a couple more keynote speeches and leadership away days to deliver for some of my corporate clients and a couple of businesses to set up with our digital learning. And then it's time to pull the plug out and switch off ahead of Santa's arrival. Now, today we're going to be digging into the mindset and career of one of the biggest names in cricket. It's perfect timing too, as another Ashes series has kicked off. We're all so excited about the Ashes and there's such an iconic series in the calendar they can be a real true test of the player's character and skill. You might have caught one of the pieces of content that I created with BT Sport looking inside the mind of an Ashes cricketer. We'll be dissecting the perfect Ashes mindset, what batsmen think when they face those 90 miles an hour fast bowlers and how the prolonged pressure and biosecure bubbles have affected people's mental health And also what it feels like to be up against one of the world's top spinners surrounded by close infielders and getting chirped. And I'll be sharing some practical coaching tips from the world of psychology to help you to sharpen your own game for when you're playing. Or if you're just interested in psychology, then make sure you follow me on social media because I'm hoping to be able to share some of those links. So if you miss out on BT Sport, you'll still be able to see that content. But before that, we're diving into the Ashes mind games of a grandmaster. If Steve Waugh was renowned for sledging or mental disintegration, then today's guest was his chief humiliation officer, a spin wizard and a true champion. He was born on the 13th of September 1969 in a quiet suburb of Melbourne and is widely regarded as one of the best bowlers the game has ever seen. And indeed, Wisden named him one of five cricketers of the century. Imagine that, being named one of the best five players in the world, in the world's second biggest sport. He's the closest sport gets to being a rock star and has great friendships with the likes of Chris Martin from Coldplay, Ed Sheeran, and of course, that famous love affair with Liz Hurley. Now Shane has made the headlines on the front pages of the newspapers, as well as the back pages with various off-the-field scandals. But I'm sure you can search those up 
if you're really interested. I'm going to focus today on his winning mindset and the experiences I've had with working with him. I've played against him a few times. He was incredible. Not only were some of the leg spinning deliveries he bowled fizzing through the air and unplayable off the pitch, but he also had this magical aura, which meant that even if you hit one of the balls that didn't spin, he made you feel like you were lucky or rubbish or both. He was a record breaker, taking 708 test wickets and he made spin bowling cool. He captured the world's imagination when he bowled Mike Gatting with that unplayable delivery that drifted and spun to leave Mike, who was a brilliant player of spin, perplexed. The ball was almost impossible and it was Warney announcing himself on the big stage with that shock of peroxide hair. Everyone now knows Warney as a legendary sportsman, but there were very few clues early in his career that would point towards this being his future. Like many kids in Melbourne, Aussie rules football was the dream sport and Warney progressed through the junior and under-19 ranks and into the St Kilda team. Despite playing several games in the reserves, he was wounded by the judgment of the selectors who ultimately said he wasn't big or fast enough to be a professional athlete. As Warney now explains, this painful failure and setback in AFL football would later be ignited as a motivational rocket fuel to help him rise to the top of world sport. Yeah, I've had a few setbacks um, and I think that's probably helped me. You know, I think, I think a lot of people or successful business and athletes or successful people, they have too much too quickly. They've got nothing to fall back on. And I think if it takes you a while to have some success and you've got a bit of there's a bit of stuff behind you, you know, there's a bit of stuff you can fall back on and experience you can have no matter how old you are. You can be 16, 17. I was 18 years of age. I remember my dream was to play Australian rules football. Um, and that cricket was sort of like what my mates did in the summer. And that sort of took away beach time. So it wasn't my first love or my first passion that I had as a kid. And I think for all the kids out there, it's important to play all the different sports. And when you're around 15, 16, you become passionate about one particular one. And I think that's when your parents and everyone around you is just about encouragement. And say, okay, well, what do you need? Take little Johnny down to the park and kick the footy with him. You know, help him do all the little things that he wants to do and just encourage, not overtake and try and live your sporting career through him, which you see so often, um, which is really annoying, but just encourage them. And I was very lucky that's what my parents did. So for me, my major, first major setback I had, besides driving a truck for 40 winks and reversing into houses and things like that, not driving too well, was in um, when I got a letter from St Kilda Football Club after three years at the football club playing professional footy, not making it to the top, but being around that group for three months, um, playing like the seconds, the level just under that, and a lot of, in the thirds, basically, the third level at the club and, and doing really well. Um, was I got this letter, open up, and your services are no longer required at St Kilda Football Club, we wish you all the best. And I was like, it was a dream shattered, that's all I ever wanted to do. You know, I'd trained, I'd got fit, I was kicking the footy every day, that was it, this was, I was, I, and, I, and I'd gone, it'd been taken away from me, and I was a bit like, shit, what, what am I actually going to do? I had no fallback plan. Um, and then a stroke of luck, I said, I'm gonna have a year off football, 
and a mate came to England to play cricket down in Bristol. And I said, uh, yeah, why not? I'll come and play cricket. So we basically played four or five days a week. I came over 79 kilos. I went back 99 kilos. So I had a great time. <laughs> um, but I learned, I just played a volume of cricket. So my cricket, in Australia, we only play in first class cricket. We played 10 games a year. That's not a lot over six months. And here I probably played, Geez, I don't know, nearly 100 games probably. I played four or five days a week for six months. Um, I played so many games, and it was just volume of bowling, batting, catching. Some of them not always um, clear in the head, Snapey. Some of it was a bit clouded and hung over. But, but that sort of gave me a bit of a taste of cricket and said, okay, well, maybe I can do this. So I went back to Australia. Um, I got involved to the Cricket Academy, and then basically it was about, okay, I'm going to try and play cricket. What do I need to do? I need to get fit for one. So I got super fit and when I sort of got involved in a few of these things and I had my first taste of international cricket, I still had a setback at international cricket. My first couple of test matches, I got smashed all over the park and I started to think, am I good enough for this level? What am I going to do? I've been set back from footy, um, setbacks of cricket, I, I managed to just fall into cricket sort of found me really rather than me finding, living the dream of trying to play cricket. So I had these setbacks and I was very lucky just to play cricket for Australia. You know, I didn't really deserve it at that, chance, uh, at that time. So I thank the selectors for sort of picking me, I suppose, and showing faith. So then it was sort of up to me to be the best I could be. Okay, let's be the best version of myself that I could be. What do I need to do? So for probably six months, I became like a human sponge about going to talk to people. I was lucky I, had, I got exposed to a guy called Ian Chappell, who is sort of regarded as one of the best captains, if not the best captain and leader in cricket. Um, Ian Chappell, Rod Marsh and Terry Jenner, the late Terry Jenner, taught me a lot about spin bowling. So I went through six months of absolutely fitness, bowling, just condensed stuff, talking um, and trying to fast forward that process. And then I got back into the Australian side and started to do okay, but it was sort of, it was hard. It was really difficult because, and I, getting when your dream shattered about what you want to do, and you fall into something else. It's about what inspires you, and for what I was just so driven to make cricket a success, because I felt a failure at football, and that's everyone to do was, what do I need to do? And I was I was hungry, and I was pretty determined too, and I found a lot out. I found a lot out about myself about how determined and motivated I could be. And I think some people need other people to motivate them, they can talk, but I believe that motivation and inspiration has to come from within. It has to come from within yourself to be the best you can. The best version of yourself is not always easy. You've got to do some hard yards. You've got to make a lot of sacrifices. A lot of what people don't realize is that not everyone is super talented and just fall into it and great and they just get this pathway of international cricket or international sport. There's a lot of sacrifices that go along the way. Family time, uh, mates, just the general things that people on a Friday, Saturday night going up, but you're away from your family for six months on, on the trot. There's a lot of sacrifices that have to be made and a lot of hard work that, that go into it. And for me, what I was driven by was my own inspiration of not being a failure and wanting to be the best I could be because my dream was shattered with footy. I'm not gonna make, I'm gonna make cricket a success and it was, it tested me at the start, but I think while I was successful as I had all those setbacks at the start in football and in cricket, and it just, I didn't give up. I just didn't give up and I said, I'm, 
I'm gonna make this work. And I just was so determined in my mind to make it work and did everything I possibly could to make it work and be the best I can be. And you know, in the end, by having that mindset for the whole time, um, it turned out okay. Well, that's the understatement of the year, but how inspirational was that insight? Here's an iconic sportsman who completely redefined cricket, who felt at one point in his life like a failure. He had no evidence that he could make it, but he himself found the spark. He'd come to England to learn his craft and he'd bowled a thousand overs and by the sounds of it had a thousand pints of beer as well. But he learnt to compete in those tough senior leagues in Bristol and the Lancashire League, notorious for putting the professional that comes from abroad under massive pressure to be accountable and win the game. Then his talent had been spotted by the selectors of the Australian Cricket Academy and had been fast-tracked. This was renowned for being run by disciplinarians like Rod Marsh and produced a conveyor belt of talent, players like Ponting, Gilchrist and McGrath. And Warney pivoted 180 degrees from that sloppy lifestyle to a period of focus, fitness and learning. And this mindset combined with the mentorship of people like Terry Jenner by his side, he accelerated his development tenfold and quickly found himself in the Australian test team after just seven first class matches. His international debut against India in 1992 was not spectacular nor was his second series against Sri Lanka. But when he took seven for 52 against the West Indies to win the Boxing Day Test in front of a crazed 80,000 fans, he'd shown what a match winner he could be. Fast forward to 1993 and the Gatting Ball, and his career transformed overnight. He was suddenly an A-lister, signing global commercial contracts with companies like Nike, alongside global megastars like Michael Jordan. My first time working alongside him was at the IPL in 2008. I knew the English owner of the Rajasthan Royals, Manoj Badali, and he'd been introducing some sponsors to Leicester's commercial team at the time. We chatted about my successful time at Gloucestershire in that team that won loads of trophies around the year 2000, and the strategies we'd used to get Leicester to the first four finals in this new emerging format of the T20. I think Manoj quite liked that blend of innovation, psychology and practicality. So after being probed by lots of his questions, he leaned across the table and gave me a very strange offer. I'd recently completed my master's degree in psychology and was captain at Leicester at the time. And Manoj asked me if I'd like to go and work at a new tournament in India and then be in the support team alongside Shane Warne as the captain and coach. Now this may seem like a no-brainer knowing what we know now about the Indian Premier League, but it hadn't even been spoken about, no one knew anything about it, and I was busy getting ready for the final year of my playing career. I took them off on the offer and initially managed said, go out for 10 days, just check out everything's been set up correctly and get involved in the final squad selections and help some of the young Indian guys to get nice and confident before they start to play against some of the big guns like Sachin Tendulkar. It was a, such a surreal request. So a few days later, I left the freezing indoor nets at Leicestershire Cricket and landed in the deserts near Jaipur to be met at the hotel reception by the blonde bombshell himself. G'day, Snapey, mate. And we were off. 
Now, the bit I didn't realise at the time was that Warney hated talk about psychology or psychobabble, as he called it. Uh, he thought the only time that players needed a coach was to take them to the stadium. Uh, so despite his beaming white smile, he wasn't really a fan. So much so that he'd actually booked a return flight for me after three days out of his own pocket, just if I started to talk too much waffle. So I naively went about my business, trying to have one-to-one -one conversations and get to know the players and support staff. And the first 10 days went well. And I didn't realise that I'd probably passed his test. We'd shared a few beers, we'd shared a few selection debates and uh, you know a few early successes with the squad. And as I was preparing to pack my bags to return home after my 10-day stint, Warney asked if I'd like to stay for the whole tournament. And again, with two kids at home and my testimonial year at Leicestershire uh, just about to start, this seemed like a really big call, but it just felt like too big an opportunity to miss. So I called home and called Leicestershire and off we went. And it was a really special time, something that I look back with great pride and, and great fun. Players from all around the world coming together for that inaugural IPL in 2008. None of us could have forecast the adventure that lay ahead for that Rajasthan Royals team that eventually went on to win that first IPL, the underdog team with the cheapest budget. No one fancied us at all, but we managed to pull together under the guidance. And Warney explains now what a special time it was for him too. Yeah, I was very lucky to play in an era of Australian cricket that was super successful. Um, and I was very lucky to be successful too. But I think 2008 IPL where was something unique because we all play for teams and you're all Australian or you're, well, you couldn't say you're all English because there's about eight South Africans and whatever else. But the most of the, the, the countries we played against were all from that country. So you all thought the same. With um, the IPL, we had six different cultures. So how do we manage the six cultures? We've all got the common goal of we want to win the IPL. But there were different things that make each other tick. Some were just in order to take the most wickets and wear the purple hat for leading wicket takers. Others were about the money. Others wanted to prove how good they were on the cricket field. So there's so many different things. So we had 10 days to sort of work out how do we get this group together? There was, there was language barriers, there was cultural barriers. How do you get them all together to think the same and be on the same bus, same train or whatever it might be? And I think the one element of it was fun. How do we all have fun? And there was a lot of different little things that built up to that. Like, uh, I think you came up with one of a great suggestion that was to sit next to someone different on the bus each day so you got to know them. And that's not actually easy. You always like to sit in your comfort zone next to the guy you like. But I think one of the major things about those six different cultures, about everyone together, was that a, enjoying other people's success was about what we had to try and get them to get to. And by doing that, it's when they have success, when someone has success, it's all of you saying, well done. Like really patting them on the back and making something super special out of that person. And then the next time, super special, everyone had their sort of chance. And it wasn't necessarily the guy who got the most runs or the most wickets. It was something that might've been really little, like dive and stop the boundary. So you'd highlight people that for not the big stuff, but the little things that were really important to our group. And we had little things that were super important, non-negotiable things. This is what we're gonna to do today. And our effort's gonna to be 100%. We're gonna die for every ball. We have two people to fence. And then you 
congratulate the whole group to that. So you've got, it was little things that end up making the big things great. And the little things like having fun and doing everything together, like literally everything together was, um, yeah, it was just, it was a special time. And, but the individuals have to take that responsibility as well to buy into it. So Warney was so inspirational in those early days to bring a diverse group of people together. You either need an incredible goal or an inspirational leader. And Warney created both. Um, it was the back end of his career. He'd got nothing to prove and he mucked in with every activity. And this meant there was no hierarchy uh, within the team. We were all just trying to contribute and deliver something really, really special. All the big guns like Graham Smith and Sir Hale Tamvia looked up to him, of course, but uh, it was the youngsters that really had such a special time. I remember we had a young player from a really poor background in India called Dinesh, a stocky leg spinner. And uh, in one of the team talks, Warney was talking about confidence and backing yourself under pressure. And I turned around towards the back of the room and this young guy, Dinesh, had got sort of tears rolling down his eyes. And, and I went up to him and said, oh, are you OK, mate? You seem upset about something. And he said, no, I just can't believe my hero, Shane Warne. He's my captain and I'm playing in the same team. This was a real dream come true for these youngsters. Now, Warney comes across as one of the most chill guys ever. And he never put a curfew on bedtimes because he saw the parties as a key part of the team bonding. Maybe that's another episode, IPL Nights with Shane Warne. But it was lots of fun. Uh, despite the parties, though, when it came to performance, he had his non-negotiables. Like the time the bus left for training. On one of the training mornings, we had an early breach of this uh, bus departure time. And uh, it gave the boys a chance to see whether he was really serious about this rule when it was tested. Yeah, discipline's very important for a team. And when you're starting something new or fresh or in a new environment, it's about sticking to your guns. And if I think back to the 2008 uh, IPL again that we won, one of the things we said is we pick a time for the bus and that was a respect thing to your teammates. And it was a discipline thing that if you wanted to rock down whenever you want five minutes late, we, the bus wasn't there. So the first couple of times we got tested as a group, you know, the first few days, everyone's always on time because they're keen, excited. Then as you sort of get into it, and all sporting teams and all that will have these times, like the bus leaves at 10, then the superstar guys, it's 10 o'clock and he's not there, what do you do? We left. We had two international players that were playing for India, and um, we left. And they had to walk through the towns and that to the, the, to the hotel. So I don't think for the rest of the time we had... Um, any problems about lateness and, and time. And, uh, you know, actually we did once on the final. Jadeja was late on the final. The final, we're about to play this massive game in the final. The bus was 10 and we went, it's, it's time to go. We got and one of our players wasn't there. He had to make his own way to the ground. And then when he got to the ground, he was so humiliated and embarrassed that he let the team down. It's important at the start that if you're going to say stuff about the little discipline things, that you back it up. You can't say, you know, the, the legend's here or whoever the superstar is, let him get away with it. You can't do that. You've got to, it's the same for everyone. I remember on that training day, a couple of the young Indian lads that were late coming down and we left for training and they arrived disgraced by Tuk Tuk uh, a few minutes later and we were already warming up and Warney came out with this killer line. He said, you guys are cruising around the hotel thinking you're superstars. Well, guess what? I am one. 
And if I can be there on time, so can you. It was an absolutely golden line. And everyone that arrived at the bus for the next few days were definitely a few minutes early. And that lasted for the next six weeks of the tournament, apart from that final story with uh, Ravindra Jadeja there, who's now a superstar himself. This is just a quick reminder that all of the audio insights you're hearing today are actually videos from our Members Club library. And you can stream all of the 850 two-minute videos that we've got into your team meetings for your business when you become a member of Sporting Edge. We've interviewed about 100 of the world's best thinkers and performers and created a pioneering digital coaching experience to help you lead and perform with more confidence. If you search one of the themes like confidence or strategy, you'll get 10, 20, 30 bite-sized uh, videos with the wisdom of elite coaches and best-selling authors. They'll come through onto your phone in seconds. We're supporting thousands of executives around the world with our digital content. So if you go to the members area on the sportingedge.com website and use the code podcast100, you'll be able to activate a free month's membership as a valued listener of the show. To have achieved what he has in the game, Warney's had to be able to find a way in those high-pressure situations to think clearly and to win. When the team's struggling, you throw him the ball and he sees those pressure moments as a real privilege and, and a responsibility. But that doesn't just happen naturally. Like any skill, this winning mindset has got to be developed and he's been strong enough to navigate these very tense moments that could emotionally hijack some people, but he's been able to stay calm in those big match moments. I was interested in a time when he remembers starting to panic like we all do and what tangible actions he took to think clearly under pressure. And his answer around the World Cup experience was brilliant. Yeah, I remember in the 99 World Cup final, um, we were in real trouble and... I, the game was slipping away from us and I had to do something. I could feel myself a bit in fast forward. You know, the game, everything was happening so quickly, it was hard to take a step back. And I remember before I grabbed my over, I just took a couple of breaths. I took longer than I would normally take to deliver the ball. And I just focused in on what I had to do. Okay, what's my plan? How am I getting this guy out? That's all I asked myself, how am I getting him out? thought, okay, I'm going to try and get him to hit through mid-wicket. That's as simple as that. I'm not worried about the score. And it's very hard to do that. And people talk about how do you get into that? Well, how do you get into that zone? What is the zone? To me, the zone is 100% concentration on what you're about to do. And that is clearing your mind of everything, the crowd, everything. And not everyone can do that. I was very lucky that I, I, could, I could do that. I could compartmentalise about exactly what I had to do. And I found by asking myself a question when I was about to bowl, how am I getting this guy out? It's, it's a pretty simple question. And that got back to all my plans. So one, I was patient. Two, I was taking my time. Three, I was sticking to my plan. I was keeping it really simple. Smile, away we went. I ended up taking two or three wickets and a few overs and I got really pumped by it and started carrying on like it. I was, and the, I, I sort of dragged the rest of the team with me and it wasn't something I was conscious about doing. As I just knew this is what we had to do right now. And, you know, it, it just... We happened and it was against South Africa. We ended up having a tie. We went through the final. It was a fantastic game. But it was, that was something I was really proud of because, as you said, the question was, 
you know, did you feel yourself? And I did, but I actually overcame that. And that sort of helped me for the rest of my you know, 10 years, 15 years after that, because it was just something I did. So again, some really rich detail from inside the mind of a real champion at a time when most people would implode with a negative spiral of thinking we've got to win the game, worrying about failing, worrying about what the media are going to say and maybe getting over technical and over mechanical in our thoughts. And these are classic symptoms of choking. But Warney had that self-awareness and those mental skills that he developed to reverse that stress response and turn it into something productive. So he slowed down his mannerisms. Our brain wants to keep us safe and to speed through these negative experience. He took slightly longer walking back in an arc to the end of his run-up. This was imperceptible to everyone else, but to him it brought him those crucial two or three seconds to reframe his thinking and relax his body. His breathing became a focus. We can't bowl with tension, we can't do anything with mental tension. So his positive question, how am I going to get him out? engaged that executive neocortex part of his brain and rather than you know sticking with the amygdala that's all about that primitive fight and flight response and if we'd have asked our question or oh, what's going to happen if he smashes me this delivery then that would keep us in that negative spiral but that aggressive intent of wanting to find a way to win rather than being frozen and being paralyzed by fear is absolutely part of Warney's winning mindset and it's something that I wish we could all you know get in our own uh, sort of next injection or our next booster we need a booster of confidence not just a immunization against COVID but over the six years I worked in cricket with Warney I'd regularly take a baseball mitt and catch some balls as he was warming his shoulder up and bowling a few down and just watching him prepare was absolutely fascinating the big contrast for me was in English cricket, I think we're coached to, you know, in a step by step phases of our action, tracking our front arm, thinking about our shoulder alignment, thinking about our hip rotation and the follow through. And what happens when you get under pressure is you can start to your skills break down and you start to overthink these stages rather than having one fluid action that's just aggressive and all about intent. But Warney wasn't breaking the skill down. He was focused on what he was going to do to the batsman, that intent that's so important. How do I get the batsman to make this mistake? What shape of delivery do I need to, to achieve that? It was almost like he was throwing the focus down the wicket and making it the batsman's problem. And then all he had to do was trust his muscle memory uh, to be able to deliver that ball that could achieve that outcome. So Warney was a ferociously competitive artist, not a mechanical robot. And that's why he could create so much theatre around the game, because he was thinking about the competition rather than the mechanics and, and being stilted by those pressure moments. He could even do that when nothing was happening, which was where his real genius came through. Now, as Warney hinted earlier, he's no stranger to controversy and criticism, but he's got really thick skin and waterproof skin. So any of the flack that gets chucked at him is, you know, just drips off him, uh, as he now explains. How to handle criticism? Well, Snapper, I, I could say I've had my fair share of that. And some of it, a lot of it I've bought on myself. But, um, you know, a lot of it was general banter. I mean, I've had songs sung at me at grounds for six hours a day for six months. I used to sing along with them. 
I never saw it as, I never got upset by it. Only once down in Somerset where they went a bit too far on the cider. And even the umpire said, mate, do you want to, what are we going to do here? And I said, mate, it's cool. And then after five hours, I saw it because we're getting smacked all over the ground. I was like, okay. But I think the one thing with criticism is you've got to sort of use it as a bit of flattery. That they're worried, they're worried about you, otherwise they'd be singing about somebody else. So I saw criticism, in the, whether it be newspapers, whether it be at the grounds, whether it be whatever, as a bit of fun. Let's actually laugh about it. If it was someone, the criticism I always found, if it was someone from a Richie Benno, who in our sport was someone that was sort of the most respected guy. If he wrote something or said something that was a little bit criticising me, I'd, I'd, the first thing I'd do was go up to him and see him and say, hey, Richie, um, why did you think da-da-da-da-da, whatever it was? And I'd have it out with him. So I never sort of got away, walked away, and then said, oh, he's a prick, isn't he? That wasn't my style, that stuff. I remember another time, which was a quite a funny thing. It, wasn't, it was uh, in India during the IPL in 2008. Saurav Ganguly was a, uh, was a big Indian player, and I basically called him a cheat. And they started burning, putting these blonde uh, wigs on these effigies when we went to Kolkata, and I just sort of had a giggle about what they were doing. I didn't worry about it too much. I just had a laugh about it. So I think if you take it with a grain of salt, it's not easy to do it. Some people get really hurt by it and they're, and they're sensitive. That's just the way they are. I sort of just used to laugh about it. I never really worried about it. Uh, I think when I first started, there's that thing about, do you read the papers? Do you read it? Do you not read it? Oh, I don't read it. I read everything. And the reason I did that, because when people tell you from afar about a story, it's always 10 times worse. And then when you read it yourself, you go, well, it's not as bad as you think. So I've always thought criticism, read everything, and then make your own mind up, laugh about it, have a mentality of laughing about it, or if it actually affected you from someone you respected, then take it up with them and have it out. I was sitting next to Warney at that press conference in front of the media when he called Sarav out for claiming a dodgy catch on the half volley. And my heart absolutely sank when he used those words. The reporters literally couldn't scribble their shorthand fast enough and the clatter of cameras that went off just as he said it was deafening. So uh, I definitely knew something was coming. And a few days later, we were sitting in the team room and I saw behind him, you know, the TV with that ticker tape running at the bottom. And some of the images looked a little bit uh, worrying with the local teens stamping on a burning effigy of Shane Warne live on the news. So I just uh, alerted him to turn around and I thought he'd get, you know, he needed to see it. But uh, I hope he wouldn't get too affected by it. And instead, he sort of just uh, looked over his shoulder at the TV, took a drag on his cigarette uh, and then just went bloody mappets and then carried on eating his pizza, which I thought was absolutely, you know, a beautiful moment just showing his resilience. But there are a few insights in that last clip that I really like. I love the way he says he reads everything in the media. I've actually seen him. He's got millions and millions of followers and he does check the messages and he does see comments and he does read the articles because I guess a lot of people say they're not going to read it, but then they hear it from family and friends and you go digging and fishing for it anyway. And, and by that time, you've probably, you know, catastrophized it a bit more. So there's something very transparent about just reading everything and, and making your own interpretation of it. And then secondly, that uh, ability to go and track somebody down, if it's somebody that he respects, to go and find out what he could have done differently or could have done better. And I think that's, again, a great sign of somebody who's looking to be world-class just to, to take on that feedback and improvement all the time. 
I'm sure there's been a few moments when he's been spiky with uh, people that have criticised him. But um, yeah, certainly, you know, key messages there about resilience for any of us. And there's probably a middle ground for us, you know, where many of us aren't in that media spotlight. But it's to explore the message rather than the messenger. For example, one of your customers or maybe a restaurant critic comes in and they could hammer us for one of the dishes that we've uh, created. And instead of just discrediting that person and getting really emotional about it for being an idiot, we can explore what they're saying and use it as a discussion or a learning point to reflect with our own teams. At the end of the day, it's about us being the best we can be and where the feedback or suggestions come from is irrelevant. So when I asked Warney for his tips for any coaches or managers in business about the best way to deliver feedback, it was no surprise that his answer was straight down the line. The best sort of feedback you can give as a leader, whether it be coach, captain, um, boss man of a company, the best feedback you can give to anyone is honesty. And sometimes it's awkward, sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's not great, it might be a mate, it might be difficult to say they've missed out on the job or you've dropped out of the team. It's not easy to say that. But I guarantee you they'll respect you more if you're honest with them and say why they're not, why you haven't got that job or why you haven't got that position. I remember Alan Border coming up to me in a test match and saying, oh mate, look, you know, I'm not sure what's going to happen tomorrow. I said, so I'm not playing? He goes, well, I'm not sure. I think the other select... I said, mate, I promise you, if you just say I'm not playing and tell me why I'm not playing, I'll appreciate it. So the next day he came up and said, mate, you're not playing because we don't think the wicket's going to turn. We're going with all the quickies. I said, fine, I get it. So you respect that decision because he was honest and straight up. If someone's honest and straight up with you, that's the best feedback you can give anyone because they might not like it, but they'll respect you for it because you told them the truth. That's the best way to do it. Again, I like that directness. We don't all have Warney's stature or confidence, but I do think we can probably all dial up the honesty in our, in our chats by perhaps 10%. And ultimately, if we respect those we're giving feedback to, we need to give them the closest version to the truth we have the courage to give. Ideally, that shouldn't just be judgmental and historic based on past performances like feedback. We should add in some positive to-dos and work-ons or feed forward. So instead of you're not good enough, it's for you to be selected again, we need you to develop X, Y and Z skills and I'll help you to deliver that and practice that you know, before the next set of selections. That way, that laser-focused honesty is balanced with something that they can focus on, some more support rather than just dwelling on the negative. So building on from that, one of the biggest questions I get asked in leadership development and team culture sessions with my corporate clients is, how do you manage those talented stars that bend the rules? And I suppose there's two ends of a, a spectrum here. One where you set some school rules that no one can break. Uh, that's like Warney's um, timekeeping rules for the bus departure. Uh, and no one can break those. They're absolutely sacred. And then at the other end of the scale, we've got... Uh, not everyone being managed by the same set of rules. We've got very different uh, permissions and freedoms and flexibilities based on how well you're performing. So this is where the star performers get more flexibility and more freedom. So this is a really interesting continuum to think, where do we sit as a leader and a coach within our team? Do we believe that there should be a set of rules that everyone is guided by and no one's any different? 
or do we believe that actually we're going to have different flexibilities and freedoms you know based on on each individual in the team who better to ask their opinion on this than Shane Warne so he gave a really interesting perspective people see it as a difficult decision how to handle the mavericks in the team the ones that are opinionated the personalities sort of the heartbeat of the side everyone gravitates towards the popular person how do you handle those guys well it's quite easily in my opinion and that is make them feel part of it so even if they're not a leader of the team they are they might have an official title but they're sort of the go-to person everyone looks up to so to get the best out of them and the rest of the team, you've got to make them feel involved, make them feel a part of the decision-making process. And even more important than that is make them feel important. If you make them feel important and special privately, they'll give. The more you knock them down and say, sit in the corner, don't worry, you just play and do your stuff, the more they will resent that. So you have to get the best out of them because you know they're a match winner or a game changer, then you need them. So make them feel important make them feel wanted and make them feel included in some of the decisions. And I, look, there's so many examples I could use in cricket where I've done that when I was captain and when the captain's done that with me to say, what do you think today? What do you think we should do today? Bat, bowl, declaration. Just the little things that the decision the team needs to make, if you feel included in that, then it makes you buy into it and makes you give to everything. And all it is is a simple arm around you if it needs to um, or catch up in the morning, let's catch up for brekkie and have a chat about the game. Okay. And if you just make them feel important, make them included in it, they'll give. The more you fight them, the more you tell them to sh shut up, just do your thing, do the team thing, you know, not, you're not bigger than the team and all that crap. That, they will always want to be an individual. You can't change it. And if they're good enough and you need them in the team to win, then you've got to make him feel important. You've got to make him feel special. And everyone knows it, so don't hide it. Yeah, he's the man. He's the man. He's going to do it for us today, whoever that is. So let's watch him. Go and show us how to do it, buddy. Show off. Show us. And he'll want to. So don't fight him. Involve him. Put your arm around him and make him feel important. That's the way to do it. So I definitely agree with Warney when he talks about making the individuals feel like they're special. I mean, everyone should feel like they're playing a special role in the team. But we shouldn't also assume that the most successful players are also the most confident. Often they do have these insecurities or this fear of failure that's driving them. So by giving them bits of information or giving them the heads up about strategies or, or the schedule for the next few weeks, it might make them feel like they're getting slightly special treatment, but that allows them to relax and then buy into some of the other things in the team. Certainly in my early playing career at North Ants with Kirtley Ambrose, uh, we never made him do the mundane warm-ups that we were all doing. Uh, he had permission to sit on the balcony, read the newspaper and, and have a cup of tea uh, while he watched us all sort of doing shuttle runs up and down the pitch at, at nine o'clock in the morning. But at 11 o'clock when the match started, he bowled at 90 miles an hour uh, and he often won the game for us. So we as players, we were very happy that he was getting extra flexibility and, and uh, you know benefits. Um, and we were benefiting from him being ferocious and uh, winning his games. So the challenge comes, I think, this is where we're giving freedoms and flexibility, but the challenge comes when that top performer starts to bring that huge personality, but they start to compromise the team rules. 
Um, so they may be creative disruptors in their skills as maybe it's a graphic designer or a coder. It could be a, a, a batsman or it could be a salesperson. So if they're breaking the rules in their profession, I think it's unrealistic to think that they're just going to be very timid and could be controlled in the team environment. So this is an age old tension for leaders and coaches and managers. And we need to make sure that our stars do feel special and feel like they're really valued and they are up on a bit of a pedestal. But we also need to make sure that if they do cross any of these sacred boundaries, that we come down very hard on them. Because if the rest of the team see that those rules aren't really being followed through on, then we've got a problem and we can rarely return from that. If you've got a maverick or some difficult personalities in your team and you want to go into a bit more depth, then episode 14 is called Managing Mavericks of this podcast. So go back through the the various uh, timelines and and you'll be able to get to that episode and I'm, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. If you feel like you need more confidence in your leadership, then have a look at our Winning Mindset for Leaders program at Sporting Edge, which starts in early January. I'll be personally guiding a group of entrepreneurs, coaches and execs through this pioneering 12-week digital coaching experience. And you'll learn from sports stars like Warney, but also Harvard professors, business strategists, sustainability experts and neuroscientists to give you a winning game plan for your career and your business in 2022. There's a link in the show notes to explore more, but if you're an ambitious leader who wants 2022 to be different, it won't be unless you sharpen your skills and think like a world-class leader. So we've done all the hard work for you by curating these 12 weekly learning pathways to give you everything that you need to be at your very best. So follow the link uh, in the show notes and drop me a note to hello at sportingedge.com and we'll see if you're a good fit for the January cohort of the winning mindset for leaders. Now, another big discussion point is around what it takes to get to the top of your field, whether it's in sport, business or academia. So I asked Warney for his view. There's a lot of talented people that never made it because they didn't have the right attitude. And that's a waste. I've seen plenty of, I've seen two or three of my best friends I grew up with. They're a lot better sportsmen than me, but got down the wrong track and um, never made it. So I, I think it all way, I think it does come back to no matter if you're talented or you have a good work ethic and you're finding a way to get into it. I think the most important thing is the way you think. As I said right earlier, you have to be determined and you have to have the mindset of, I wanna be the best I can possibly be. You have to have that. You're not going to make it if you haven't got that, no matter if you're talented or you're just prepared to work hard. You have to have a certain amount of talent. A talent is also having a good work ethic. That's a talent because not everyone's got that. It's pretty hard to be disciplined every single day and train for four hours, get up at four o'clock in the morning and watch a line down the pool and swim, go for a run, do all that. That's, that's a talent too in itself, having a good work ethic. So I think it's really important to define what talent is. Um, to me, as I said before, if you wanna get anywhere, you have to have the right mind to do it. And you have to think you're the best at it. You have to think that, you have to be determined and you have to, it's gotta be fun for you. If it's not fun for you, you're not passionate about it, you'll find a way to make an excuse about something. But if you wanna be the best at whatever it is you do, you've gotta think about, you've gotta think the right way and make the right choices and have the best attitude. So how do we define talent? 
we tend to think of it as a natural gift to spin the ball or a natural aura somebody has as a leader. But those things don't just happen. The special performers develop in that collision between talent and tenacity. The hunger to keep coming back, to keep refining, experimenting and improving until you see those glimmers of success. And then when you do, you double down and chase it even faster. Warney's early setback showed that being rejected once doesn't make you a loser. Being criticised shouldn't stop you. Far from it. These things should narrow down your options, strengthen your resolve and place that all-important fire in the belly that we need to get through those cold mornings, to push that hundredth press-up or to get through that pile of invoices that we've been waiting to process. Of course, we like the stories of the magical moments, the ball of the century that flicked effortlessly out of his fingertips and rewrote history. But that came from thousands of hours of tinkering and refining. That's the part that we need to enjoy. Progressing in the shadows, in the Lancashire leagues, in the back office, because one day a moment will present itself and your skills have been honed, ready to seize it. Warney's taught me so many things over the years of working with him, but I can safely say that I've never known anyone commit to their skills as much as he does. He's got some crazy ideas, but somehow he gets them to work. His belief is contagious, and I really hope you've caught some of that confidence today. Now, I know every podcast host that you listen to says the same thing and it almost becomes white noise. But if you found anything in this episode helpful or inspiring, I'd love you to share it with your network or take five seconds to leave a five star review. And that will really help other people who are searching for ways to improve their mindset or cricket fans to find the show. Please do send your questions through to me at hello at sportingedge.com if you need any support with your business. And uh, if you've got any questions for future episodes, I'd love to feature your voice in one of the short episodes, the micro lessons. And remember, you can also activate your free month's membership to watch all of Warney's videos by visiting sportingedge.com forward slash membership and using the code podcast 100 in the checkout. So make sure you follow me on the social media and I'll get those links across to the BT Sport videos. And I really hope that you enjoy the start of the ashes. Thanks to Warney also for sharing his amazing story today. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.